I'm Kim Metrison. I am the co-dean of Rutgers Law School on the Camden campus, and this is The Power of Attorney. Um, I always love doing these interviews. It's always a good time to hear more about and learn more about um, folks who are our alums and doing interesting things in the world, but it's also really, really great to talk to my colleagues um, who actually work in the building with me um, and get to know them a little bit more and the work that they do. Um, and this one is especially um, interesting because it is part of a series that we are doing um, on the secret lives of lawyers. So that gives you a hint that something interesting is going to happen um, in this episode. So the person who is with us here today um, is my colleague, Pam Genoff. Um, and Pam, thank you so much for making the time to talk to me. Thanks for having me. This is fun to get to chat outside the normal auspices. Absolutely, absolutely. So Pam, I'm gonna start with you the way I do with everybody um, who I interview for the podcast, which is to ask you your origin story, right? So when we think about the fact that there are millions of different things that you could have chosen to do with your life, and yet you chose, at least initially, you chose to be a lawyer. So where did that come from? What made you decide that law was where you wanted to be? Well, you know, it's interesting because it, for me, it actually isn't originally. It was about a third career. I mm, think. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I want to tell you is that I do not come from a family of attorneys or mm -hmm. even a professional family. My brother and I are first generation college. Um, and so um, I, I didn't grow up around the law. I worked as a messenger at a law firm in college, but I was just trying to pay the bills. And so I was one of those, you know, young students who came in, not so young, but came into law school having never seen a complaint you know, mm. had no idea what it was about. When I finished undergrad, I had the opportunity to study abroad. I did a master's at Cambridge um, and I went over there for two years. And after that, I actually entered a period of government service. Um, so I went to the Pentagon for a year um, with a mentor of mine who had become the Secretary of the Army, Togo West. And that was my year where I really felt like I saw the world from the shoulders of giants, to mm. kind of paraphrase uh, Isaac Newton. Mm -hmm. um, I went from there to the State Department. I was a foreign service officer and I was in Poland for two and a half years, which is a really interesting place to contemplate when you watch the news these days. And then I was in Poland and I was like, yeah, you know, I wanna go back to the States. Foreign service was not my long career and I had no marketable skills. Um, so I, I needed- what did, what did you major in in college? So undergrad, I was international affairs. Um, I have a master's in history, which was lovely, but prepared me to do very little. Um, in a, you know, I come from a very practical family. Like everyone kind of went to an office and did a job. Nobody sat in Starbucks with their feet up writing. Um, so you were gonna go do a job. And so um, I thought, well, I need a career. Um, and I actually took the LSAT when I was living in Poland. I went to London and took the LSAT. And I think there might've been a bomb scare during it, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and the LSAT went well, and I thought, well, I'm just gonna go to law school. Um, and so I came back uh, to the States. I actually started at NYU. Um, which I, you know, I, I know you have an affiliation there as well. I did my first year at NYU, um, which was a huge culture shock because I had come from rural Poland where my neighbors had cows and chickens. And I was suddenly in Greenwich Village and my first day of law school, there was like a chalk outline on the street out front of the dorm. So I was like, whoa. And um, so I actually did not finish at NYU. I finished at Penn. I came back to Philadelphia to be near my family. Um, and that is how I came to law school. And I then I came out in a very, even though it was my third career, 
I actually came out of uh, law school in a very traditional way. So I summered at a large Philadelphia firm and I, I joined that firm. Got it. Um, I want to go backwards a little bit, if if I could, because as you well know, we educate a lot of first-gen lawyers um, here at Rutgers um, and folks who, you know, I always say one of the things that I love about this job and that I love about teaching at Rutgers is that we can sort of, um, because we have so many first-gen students, we can literally sort of watch people not just change their own individual trajectory, but really change the trajectory of their families by virtue of the fact that they've gone to college and then gone on to to law school. Um, but I think that for a lot of our students, there is this sense of um, you know nervousness and disconnect about coming to law school as first gen students. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about um, you know what that journey was like for you first going into college, and then as you said, you know having this. Um, sort of, you know, culture shock of, of going into law school. But obviously, you've been very successful. Um, and I think that those stories are really good stories for people to hear. So, um, you know, what was that like for you being, you know, first generation college and then moving on to law school? Well, before I talk about my first gen journey, can I gush about our students for a second? Yes, please do. I'm out there, um, I speak to the media a lot. And the first thing I always talk about are our Rutgers students. And I think it is because we have so many first gen students that it's such a special place and a unique culture of hardworking and unentitled students. Um, I've had students who did not speak English as their first language as children who got the highest grade in legal writing. And it's such a journey for them to be able to go to their families with that and say, you know, look what I did. Um, It's really incredible. And that's, it's a spectacular joy to be here and help these students get where they're going in their careers. And so that's my single favorite thing about Rutgers. Not that the faculty and deans aren't amazing. But really, that's my very favorite thing about Rutgers. So the most interesting part of my starting law school was not actually being the first gen, because my family valued education and support us. I mean, my brother went on to be a surgeon, like it was a very education heavy family. The big shift for me was that I had been out in the working world. Mm. And in some ways, that gave me an advantage in that I was pretty organized. But it was a very unique challenge to shift to law school mindset, law school writing. And I'm going to be really honest, my first semester 1L grades were dreadful. And I always tell my students that in January, I'm like, I had like the worst one first semester grades and it doesn't define you, you know, it's what you do from here. So it was like stepping into the classroom again and learning in this new way that I had never actually done before that really took me a little bit of time to get used to. Yeah. Yeah. And were there particular things that you did that you felt Um, you know, help you, you know, we say to students all the time, when you come to law school, we're going to change the way you think, we're going to change the way you sort of see the world. Um, And I don't know that, that people really get a sense of what that means until you're actually in law school and sitting in classrooms and um, sort of having that experience. And I, I wonder if you have any, um, you know, advice for folks who are coming into law school who, um, you know, sometimes can find that transition to be incredibly jarring. I do. Although I will say with candor that it's not advice that I would have understood when I was a law student. It's in many Mm. years in retrospect. And also I teach, you know, a preparation for practice seminar, which I think about this a lot. But what I tell my students on the first day um, is think of yourself as a lawyer from the day you walk in the door and that will make we, we will send you out of here better prepared than anyone else in the country. And I mean that because if you have that lawyer mindset, you're going to be 
a really proactive consumer of your legal education, which is really what we expect from people. Um, you will learn your own learn. You will get to know your own learning style and what works for you. Am I a classroom learner? You know, in my case, I needed to sit with teaching assistants every week. You will seek out those opportunities to network, and you will conduct yourself in a professional manner. Um, and those kinds of things. I think that's the the mindset law students need for growth, really. Yeah. And I also think that that's one of the benefits that people all often experience by virtue of the fact of taking some time off before they come back to law school, right? That ability to kind of, you know, put, put on that professional hat really early on in the experience can be, um, can be really critical, I think. Agreed. Absolutely. Okay. So you graduated from law school um, and you started practicing law and you were doing employment law? Yes. Okay. Um, and I've said this before um, on the podcast, but I, I, I like to, you know, um, reinforce ideas sometimes. So, you know, a lot of times you'll hear people say, oh, I do employment law, I do health law, I, you know, I do transactions, um, or students say that's, you know, what they want to do. And they really don't have much of an idea of what it actually means in practice to be an employment lawyer. Um, and I think usually what people think is I'll either be plaintiff side or I'll be defendant side. And that's just all it means, sort of. Um, what was what was your experience like as somebody who was an employment lawyer? What kind of work were you doing? Who were you working for? Um, what are the ways in which you found it to be fulfilling? So I was a labor and employment associate at Morgan Lewis, big firm, center city office. And that means you're always defense side. Um, it's very clearly one side that you were like, well, there's a shift because when I was in government, I was a Clinton appointee. So it was mm-hmm. not management side employment law is not something that came to me naturally, but mm-hmm. it was very interesting to do the work, which in many cases, it, it was not that cut and dry. It was, it was nuanced and it was complex and I did not feel like I was representing the forces of evil, as, as mm-hmm. some might expect when you go yeah. into that type of big firm atmosphere. Um, I love big firm training. It was very cutting mm-hmm. edge. I love the colleagues that I work with because we spend so much time together and I'm still close to many of those people. The biggest surprise um, was it wasn't just litigation. Um, Mm -hmm. There is a huge counseling piece in that type of work where you are working with employers before there's ever an issue to develop their policies, to conduct training, to um, troubleshoot situations. And and, uh, companies even are in many cases trying to do the right thing there. And so there's a much bigger piece of it that if you do it well, you don't have to get to that litigation piece. And so I enjoyed that aspect of the work. Yeah, I did um, an interview with our grad, um, Brian McGinnis, not too long ago, who, who is an employment lawyer. Um, and I asked him sort of what, you know, what are the things that you like the most about your practice? And counseling is one of the things that he talked about. And he talked about, um, you know, being in a position where you can help employers not just satisfy what their legal requirements are, but help them go above and beyond um, those requirements in, in, in some circumstances. And there's a real value in that, right? And I think sometimes we have this very sort of black and white view of, well, if you're on the employer side, you're this terrible person who's working for terrible people. If you're plaintiff side, you're this great person who's working for great people. Um, and the world is is always, always more complicated than that. 
It is. And for example, I loved learning the different industries that you would represent. And one of my favorites was we represented nursing homes, you know, which mm. was a really interesting practice um, to learn why it was so important, obviously, to do that job well. Um, in my pro bono practice, I represented the largest food services organization, Hunger Relief, in the area, and they had employment issues. So um, it was very interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, so how long did you do that work for? About five years, give or okay. take. And then what was it that made you think, I want to try something different? You know, I didn't plan to leave again. I really, you know, I was like homegrown at that firm and I was there, but you hit those middle associate years where you're either going to go forward or you're not. And I think there are many challenges. Um, I did not have a family at that point. I was not married. So for me, it wasn't that sort of work-life challenge, but I actually do think there's particular challenges for women in the profession um, at that point, whether it's the, the mentoring or the second generation discrimination issues. And I'm not saying mm-hmm. I think any of those directly, but it's a really kind of critical moment. And at that time, I was actually approached by a headhunter um, to go in-house. Um, and so I made the decision to leave my firm and I was in-house employment counsel for Exelon, which is Pico, the power company. Mm-hmm. So I went over there and that was a fascinating experience. I was only there, I think about two and a half years, but it's very interesting to work in an organization like that. Um, the the emphasis on what you do is more toward the training and troubleshooting. I did litigate a little bit, but most cases you're going to outsource the litigation because you don't have the resources. But also the decision making in a corporation, I found to be much more collaborative than it had been in a firm. So mm-hmm. in a firm, you're staffed very vertically, right? You've got a partner, maybe a senior associate and a junior, and you're not often making the decisions and calling the shots when you're in the organization and you're legal and then maybe there's HR and there's labor relations. I thought there was more, I found there was more opportunity for constructive dissent and to have that conversation. Mm. And that's actually what's been fueling some of my current scholarship, which I know I'm getting a little off topic, but I'm working on this article about creating space for constructive dissent in large legal organizations. And that really came from those two contrasting experiences I had. So I want to I want to follow up on two two threads um, of what you just said. Um, so one is that you um, very casually threw up the phrase second generation discrimination, um, and I would love to hear you explain to folks you know what you mean when you talk about second generation as opposed to first generation um, discrimination. Um, and then I also I, I'm really intrigued by uh, what you just said about you know creating space within. Um, large law spaces for constructive dissent. And that's really an interesting concept as well. So first, let's talk about second generation discrimination. Um, and then let's talk about, um, you know, being able to, to, to say you disagree. Yes. So second generation employment discrimination, I'm going to use that term really loosely because I'm not up on the literature of the past five years. But when I came to Rutgers and I started writing some scholarship and I was looking at some employment issues, I was reading these fascinating articles that talked about it. And it's not the sort of primary discrimination that we think of, of you didn't hire me or you didn't promote me, the the tangible employment actions um, that, that we think about that one might be discriminated against in. Um, These are more the kinds of interactions that enable people to rise or not rise. So I'm Mm -hmm. thinking about mentoring and opportunities and social opportunities. And what you see in any organization, and I'm certainly not talking uniquely to my experience, is that 
people tend to mentor and relate with people who look like them. Sure. Um, and so that's who you go golfing with, or that's who you have lunch with. Um, and those people, when when you start to see um, in some organizations that the people who are kind of rising look a lot like the people who went before them. And I think it makes it particularly hard for attorneys of color and for female attorneys and anyone who doesn't fit the traditional mold to find those kind of mentoring relationships. And so one thing I worked on in my pre- my preparation for practice seminar with my students was building those mentoring relationships. And, and they're not always where you think you're going to find them. But that's what I mean by that, that, that meeting the people who are going to help you move to the next level. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think it's one of those pieces of advice that we often will give um, to students or to young lawyers, right? That the people who can be your mentors, the people um, who you're, who can be your champions, and those can be two, you know, completely separate um, and distinct people don't have to be folks who look like you, don't have to be folks who had um, your life experience, but they can still be people who help you move forward in your career. Um, And particularly when we think about how um, still lacking in diversity our profession is, a lot of times you have to be willing, right, to seek out mentors who are, you know, who are a different gender or a different race or, you know, whatever, whatever it might be um, in order to be successful. So that's one of those things that I think folks have to uh, have to get comfortable with um, as, as part of this profession. Yes. And one of the things I love to do in my professionalism seminar, I had a, lar- a large list of people who were willing to be contacted for informational interviews. And I made my students go out and I signed them, you're going to do three informational interviews. And these were people who I know. And I said to them, when you interview that person, ask them how they know me. And it wasn't Mm. often that we had worked together. It would be something sort of random, like, I've sat next to Pam at the Eagles game for 20 years, or (laughs) we did karate together when we were little. And the point to the students was not to hear my war stories, but to understand how broadly you should look for those mentoring relationships. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So let's, let's um, shift gears to, um, to Rutgers. Let's shift gears to, um, to teaching. So I was not a person, I was a person who knew very young that I wanted to go to law school. So, um, you know, I was 10 years old when I decided that I wanted um, to go to law school. Um, but at no point did I imagine myself in legal academia. At no point did I imagine myself, um, to be a law professor. So, um, like a lot of folks, particularly women and women of color, I, um, completely embraced the label of accidental, um, law professor. So what about for you? What is it that made you, um, transition into legal education and what was appealing about legal education to you? Well, you know, when I was at the firm pretty early on in my first two or three years, one of my colleagues made the transition from the firm into academia. And that was the first time I had ever looked at, you know, I've always loved school. I've always loved academia, um, but I had never thought of it for me in part because I don't have a PhD. Like I didn't even think that was an option, but someone had gone from the firm um, into a tenure track position elsewhere in the country. I was like, oh, wow, this is this is really um, very, very appealing to me. And then I had to stop for a couple of reasons. I had a couple of major roadblocks in my way. I do not have a traditional background to come into academia. Mm -hmm. I was not on law review. I did not clerk. And so I never had planned these things. So I hadn't set the path. And the other thing that was frankly tricky is when you're at a large firm 
and you're representing only management side, you're very constrained in the kinds of articles you can write. So I'm not Mm. talking about like, oh, I didn't have the time to write because I can always write. It's you're constrained in what you can say. So I wasn't going to be able to say some of the things I wanted to say about employment law. And so Mm -hmm. it took me actually from that moment of realizing it until I was able to come to Rutgers was, I don't know, nine years or something like that. Oh, wow. Yeah. So then what was, so once you made the transition and, and I'll just say from, you know, my personal perspective that, um, just transitioning into academia, um, was, it was a really big shift for me. I had worked at a little nonprofit and then, um, you know, taught at, at NYU in their lawyering program. So, you know, was teaching legal research and writing and interviewing and counseling, um, and all of that good stuff. And it was, um, the learning curve was steep. I will say, um, probably more so than I than I had thought that that it was going to be. Um, and you came in also as somebody who was teaching legal research um, and writing, legal analysis, writing, um, and research here at the law school. So, first of all, um, what can you talk a little bit about? You know what happens in an LAWR class, right? Every every law school, your first year. Um, you're going to take an LAWR class, whatever they call it, whether it's lawyering or LAWR, everybody gets that class in their first year. And and what is it that you are tasked with trying to achieve with students in that first year of law school? Because you're only at least here at Rutgers, um, you know, you're the only year long class that students have when they first come to the law school. We are. And in some years, we're the small, the, you know, the only small group yep. class they have that might vary. And so these students come to us in August of their first year of law school. Some of them might be what we call jump starters, meaning they've taken a summer course. Others come in and this is your, their first week of law school and, and they meet us. And um, we take them through a process in the fall where they write what's called a memo. And that's um, advising a client about an issue. I call it the good, the bad and the ugly. It's a prediction on their case and assessment of their case. And then in the spring, they get to brief writing, which is persuasive writing for the court. But what I do on the first day of legal writing is I say, what do lawyers do? And we go through like client problem and you, you know, you do fact investigation, you know, and and where does the research come in? Almost like a linear timeline. And so why I put that up there is it's a superstructure, not really for the year, but for the semester where everything I teach them, I can say, because in the first month, you're just throwing different skills at them in seemingly random order, you know, and I want to say to them, okay, this is, this skill fits in here on our timeline and this skill fits in there. And the reason is, is because I want that buy-in from students. They, you know, that, that sort of trust the process kind of buy-in, which is really hard to get in the beginning of the year when they're so overwhelmed. And so we take them through that process. It's very individualized. There is practice, there is feedback, and there is revision. Um, and, and over the course of the year, we work on that. And one of the things that I think is... Um very poorly understood about LAWR and legal research and writing classes in general um, is the amount of time and effort that goes into teaching um, research and writing, right? It's just, it's, it is in some ways the most, yeah, I'm going to say this, I'm comfortable saying this. In some ways, it's the most practical class 
that folks will take in their first year, right? In the sense that it is, um, you know, it's a class about writing. It's a class about research. So it feels like, okay, this is a thing um, that makes sense. But I have, you know, I certainly remember in, in lawyering having the experience of students coming in you know, who'd been English majors or they'd been reporters or, you know, something where they felt like I'm a writer, right? And they walk in and they're like feeling really, really confident um, about their skills. And then they get that first draft back and they're like, what, what's happening here, right? Why is this so different? Why does it feel so different um, from what I've been used to? So can you talk about that process um, of helping students understand how legal writing is different or potentially different from other kinds of writing um, that they have done, and then helping people, right? Because your job is to help people gain that skill, and teaching people how to write is hard. Yes, and this is why we love having a dean who taught legal writing, because (laughs) you understand, right? You understand that this is very, not just labor-intensive, but it's highly individualized, because Every student comes to the law school with a different skill level in writing, a different level of experience, a different background. And you have to meet each individual where they are in order to bring them forward. So that's why it's so nuanced. And it's really interesting because that whole first month of school, you don't sort of know. And then you get that first draft and you kind of see where everybody shakes out. Um, And it's really taking them through that process. And I believe in, you know, you identify things, but the hardest part is revision. And and I know that as well as anybody. And so, um, you know, so giving them a blueprint, I want them to walk away from the first time they sit down, you know, with me with a paper and I want them to know like, okay, I always describe it as, you know, I write them a prescription at that first conference. And I encourage them to also see the teaching assistants. So I say, I have great teaching assistants. I say they can fill that prescription. So I'll give them sort of the big three things to work on. And, you know, it's not everything because it's where, what, what is a good draft on October 1st is not a good draft on November 20th. And Mm. so they have to understand that, that this is a stage and this is a process. Um, And so it's fascinating. I evolve every year. The thinking evolves in what we're doing this semester. I'm doing so many things that I had never done in the other, you know, 13 years or 12 years. So it's really exciting. Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, And the other thing, and you sort of alluded to this um, before, uh, the other thing that I really loved about teaching um, in lawyering was that it was the smallest class that students had. And so, and because, um, you know, no, I won't say nobody, but it is very hard to teach writing just in a group setting consistently, right? And so you have these one-on-one conferences or one-on-two conferences um, with students. And I love the ability to um, engage with students on that level in a way that's not always possible when you've got, you know, 70, 80 students um, in in a class. And And I wonder how that you know, affects your ability to interact with students um, and the ways in which you're able to, you know, use those individualized moments of teaching um, in a way that students might not get in some of their other classes. It is a spectacular joy to get to keep them the whole year, to keep these students the, the whole year and to go from the beginning. Um, and, and so we build this rapport. I tell them on the first day of class and I tell them on the last day in spring, I say, once I have taught you, I'm yours for life. And, so, <laughs> you know, I'm always, you know, this is just kind of like the first step in our partnership and I want to be there for them. So it's a really great 
growth arc. And I do think as challenging as the past two years have been with COVID, there have been some really unique opportunities for growth and engagement. So this semester, I the last two weeks before the brief were due, I couldn't meet with them during the day because I was conferencing with their classmates one-on-one, but they needed to see me. And so I said, every night at seven, I am doing a Zoom check-in. And it wasn't a full office hour, like be there at seven if you want to join me. And they would hop on Zoom and people would ask, take turns. I would get 10 or 12 students a night and they would take turns asking their questions, popping things up on screen share. And I'd say, oh, this is not quite whatever. And then they would come back the next day and show it to me again. And this Mm. was something that was never possible before this era. And so it's been really exciting to build the relationship even further. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of us have tried very hard to figure out, you know, what what are the silver linings of a global pandemic? There aren't that many of them, um, but there definitely are some of them that you can find. And I think that ability to, you know, find other ways to engage with students has been really productive. And now we're, we're in that phase of figuring out how do you continue to do that, um, you know, now that we're slowly moving back to, to something that's a little bit more um, normal, although still not quite yet, there yet. So I want to get to the to the secret life part. Um, so one thing you already said that I know to be a part um, of your secret life is uh, martial arts. Yes, um, I was not expecting that one. <laughs> well, well, I wasn't going to say it, and then you said something about karate, um, oh. and so I felt like, oh, okay, I can I can bring this up then. Um, so let can you talk about that a little bit? I remember years ago having a conversation with you. Um, first of all, you're like one of the hardest working people I have ever met um, in my entire life. So I don't know where you get the energy or time from. Um, but you are what? What belt are you? So I'm a lapsed black belt, but I have a second degree black belt, but I describe myself as a lapsed black belt. So I started when I was 11 and I went mm-hmm. all the way and I was going through law school and all of that. And then I took a break. And then when my kids were old enough, we went back and I didn't want to do a separate class from them. So I used to suit up and help with the kids class um, mm-hmm. for several years until COVID hit. And so um, my uh, karate is probably, I think the single most formative experience of my childhood in terms of just what it gives you in work ethic and discipline. And I really, really loved it. Um, and, and so we, we don't, go right now. We're actually the least athletic family in the area. Um, but uh, but it's, very, it's something that's very special to me and continues to be very special to me. And it's funny, I have to say, when you say secret life, I'm like, I'm too busy for a secret life. Like, <laughs> I don't have one. But yes, I, I know what you mean. But, but Although I feel like being, you know, being a black belt is probably, um, I've, I have a brother-in-law who's a Marine. He's, he's retired. And whenever I say he's retired, if anybody who's a Marine says, there's no such thing as being retired, right? Once you're a Marine, you are always a Marine. And I kind of feel like that might be the same thing about, you know, once you're a black belt, you're always a black belt. As soon as uh, the kids are doing their own thing and the pandemic puppy's in a better spot, I would definitely go back to karate, like in a heartbeat. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, and then the other uh, bit of information um, about you is that um, you're not just a legal writer. You are a, a writer writer, an out there in the world fiction writer. Um So I really want to talk about that career because, um, one, again, I mean, it speaks to enormous discipline um, because you've had, I think it's, is it 10 books? 11, yes. 11 books, right? So you've published um, 11 books, um, um, a number of which have been on the New York Times bestseller list. So that's pretty amazing. Um, And so walk me through that. Right. Like, how did you decide in the first instance that you you know, wanted to try your hand at fiction writing on that level? 
Um, and then not only just to decide that, but then to actually finish a book and to get it out there um, into the world. I mean, it seems like a, it seems so daunting. Um, and yet you've been able to do it at the same time that you're you know, teaching at a law school and you're mentoring students and you've got multiple kids at home and you know, you're out there doing karate and all these other things. So <laughs> yeah, three how, how do you become a best-selling author in that context? We have three kids and five pets. We never close yeah. here. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it's a lifelong journey. Actually, dovetails really nicely with the legal career. But I was a little kid who always wanted to be a writer. My fifth mm. grade yearbook said the next Judy Bloom, which ah. was really cool when I met Judy and I showed her that. Ah. Um, and so I always wanted to write. But all through those years of living abroad and being in school, I had the time to write and I never got started. You know, like me have that project mm. in your closet and you just can't get it off the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the novel for me. And, and okay. when I lived in Europe, like I tried, but bear in mind, when I lived in Europe, no cell phones, no internet, no English speaking peer group. I was very isolated. So what happened was I graduated from law school when I came back and I started working at the firm on September 4th, 2001. It was a Tuesday. Oh, wow. And one week later, 9-11 happened. And actually, that had lots of interesting impact for my legal career and the kind of work that I got to do. But what it did for me as a writer is I said, oh, my goodness, like this was my mortality moment. I realized mm. that I didn't have forever. And mm-hmm. if I had been a 9-11 victim, I never would have become mm. a novel. So that was like the wake up call. Mm-hmm. I took a course. I'm going to say this Temple Night School. I hate saying that because I work at Rutgers, but I <laughs> Temple Night School. We'll accept it. At 15th and Market, and it was called Write Your Novel This Year. That was the actual name of the class. Later, they called that Write Your Novel This Month. I never took that. That sounds scary. <laughs> I took Write Your Novel This Year, and I started working on my first book. But there were a couple of catches, which is that although I was now serious about writing, I was a new attorney in the city. Mm. And I had $1,000 a month in student loan debt. So I wasn't going to go mm. to the castle and write these books. Right. I always wrote the books from five to seven in the morning, like every day before I went to the firm for all those years was how I got started. Um, And uh, the other catch was that even though I was serious, it was still a long time till I got published. So Mm. it was like five years and 39 publisher rejections. And (gasps) it was April 8th. 2005 when I got the call for that first book. And then even after my first book was published, it was exactly 10 years from March 1st, 2007, when it was published, March 1st, 2017 was when I hit the New York Times. So it was was 10 years later. So um, it was, it's been a lifelong journey, truly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So again, to go back to that discipline point. So you said you, do you still wake up every day at five to write for two hours? Well, I'm going to tell you the secret. There's this thing on Twitter, if you ever see it. I know you're on Twitter as D, what, D Much, right? Uh, at uh, Professor Much. Professor at- Much. Yeah. I, um, I, there's something on Twitter called the 5 a.m. Writers Club where a lot of people oh. write at 5 a.m. I love 5 a.m. I hate 4 a.m. I hate <laughs> 4 a.m. And the problem is, if you remember, as your kids have gotten older, middle schoolers get up really early. So sometimes 5am doesn't cut it and you have to move to 4am, mm. which is mm-hmm. beautiful. But yes, that is my favorite time of day to write. And I'm a short burst writer. So you give, <sighs> give me eight hours. I can't go for eight hours, but yeah. I like those little chunks. So I always try and hit the pre wake up, you know, chunk early mm-hmm. four or 5am. And then the next chunk would be, you know, if I'm not teaching when they get out the door. So it's really, I teach my students that it's about knowing yourself as a writer. Yeah. When do you like to write? Big chunks or small chunks? Where, et cetera, et cetera. 
Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think um, I'm a person who, who, who likes, who loves to write, um, or actually the better way to describe it, um, I love to have written. I do not love writing. Yes. Right. Um, and it can be such a slog sometimes. And I think that there, you know, one of the questions I think that people will often um, ask themselves is, can you turn yourself into a different kind of writer? So if you're so, for instance, I'm a person who often likes to have those big chunks. Um, and then after I had kids, it was so much harder to find those big chunks. And I've you know, tried really hard to turn myself into, you know, you've got 30 minutes, sit down and write for a little while. And I've never successfully done that. And I'm curious whether you think that 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 is a skill that people can pick up um, if they sort of focus hard enough on it, right, to sort of change your, um, what you might think of as your kind of innate um, writing style. You know, it's interesting when I teach my students to know themselves as writers, what I tell them is you you can't use that as a constraint. Like I only work mm-hmm. in such and such a time. It has to be a starting point. It can't be limiting, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know that I'm ever going to be the person who's fresh at like two in the afternoon. I just don't think that mm-hmm. can happen. But what I've learned is that there are different skills and different parts of writing, right? Because writing is not just one skill. There's the revising or the outlining or sometimes the researching. And what you have to do is you have to segment up your day that in a way that works with the realities of your schedule, but also maximizes productivity. And I think this is one place that having been an attorney, a practicing attorney, really helps with my other writing, which is that if I'd been at the firm and I said, oh, I'm just not motivated to write a brief today, I would have lost my job. And so I always say I don't believe in writer's block because I think there's always something that you can do to kind of move the ball forward a little bit. Interesting. And are you are you one of those write every day people that you're not really, you can't really call yourself a writer if you don't write every day? I do write every day. Um, mm-hmm. I think, um, partly because being a short chunk writer, you sort of have to. You know, I'd rather uh-huh. have seven short chunks, seven days of the week, than one whole day. And so, I really do. Um, obviously, there I might miss a day or two, but I find the discipline good. Once I did something called a hundred days of writing, where I said I'm going to touch paper every day for a hundred days, no matter what happens. And right now, I'm not that rigid. I'm not that formalistic. Um, but I am much. I, the realities of what I have to do and balance mean that I do write something every day, even if it's that only that little morning snippet. Um, And let me ask you another thing, which is you just said, you know, put pen to paper. Is that just a metaphor or do you actually write longhand? Well, it's interesting. I do all of my quote unquote writing on the computer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could be, it could be different places. Like it, so if I'm doing the early stages, I'm a pantser, which means right by the seat of your pants. So <laughs> I'm in the early stages of writing, I could pop open a laptop. I used to call it the Panera office. I could work wherever. Um, and now when I'm in big revisions and if we were on a visual medium, I would show you my manuscript that's all tabbed up. I need the big computer screen because I'm just not, my eyeballs aren't that good when I have to see it all laid out. Um, so it really is computer. But the other thing I would show you if we were on video is my notebook, because I really do always have a notebook at my side. It's more for the the, tro- the troubleshooting, the brainstorming than the actual writing. But I'm very finicky about my notebooks too. Your, your books have very specific settings. Um, and those settings um, um, really grow out of um, the work that you did while you were overseas, 
right? Um, so can you talk to people about that a little bit? And also, I guess the other piece of that goes along with this is when you are writing in these very specific, um, both geographic settings and time settings, um, you know, how do you do the research that allows you to write believably about um, the time periods that you're writing about and the places that you're writing about? So my books, of you know, I have written a couple modern books, a couple hybrid books, but my the nucleus of my work sort of centers around World War II and the Holocaust. And that's because when I went to Poland, uh, those countries, Poland and its neighbors, had just come out of a half century of communism, where due to the lack of free speech, they had never been able to grapple with their issues from the Holocaust. And those issues became mm. front and center when they wanted to join NATO and the European Union. I went to Poland... And, and I'm Jewish and I was alone over there and I had become very close to the Holocaust survivors in Krakow and the U.S. government saw that I had a relationship with them and they said, OK, that's your job. Go. And so I actually worked on Holocaust issues um, in ways that were both professionally and personally like really difficult, but really rewarding and transformative. And so I came back from Poland very moved and wanting to write about it. And I consider my books love songs uh, to the people that lived through that most horrific of eras. And so there's a lot of things I'm trying to do with that. And in particular, it's very interesting when you look at history, first of all, not to paint with the broad brush. I want mm -hmm. to show that history is made up of an infinite number of individual decisions. And that's very mm -hmm. important. I love to show people from different backgrounds who were often thrown together by the war. And it's useful for people today to see them transcend otherness. I think it really helps with mm. a lot of kind of what we're going through right now. So mm -hmm. way too much to talk about today. Um, in terms of the research, first of all, I should say I write fiction. And I like to say that because I, I think writers can get in trouble if they stake too large a claim around what is true in their books. So anytime mm -hmm. somebody says, based on actual events, cross it out, lawyer Pam crosses <laughs> it out, and I say, inspired by actual events. Mm -hmm. um, but I do a lot of research. Um, and there's actually three questions about research. I promise I won't answer them all. But I always say it's, how do you do the research? How do you weave the research into fiction so that you don't get a big dump of material that stops the story just because I think it's really interesting? And how do you not mess up the research? And those are all very different questions. Um, but I love research. I love research in legal writing, too, by the way. I'm, I'm evangelical about research and the importance to lawyers' careers. So um, a different topic. But um, I do love the research. I have, a history, I have a master's in history, so I love the dusty archives. Me too. I'm definitely a history person. Um, so um, tell me, tell me how it feels when you when your you know publisher uh, calls you and says uh, you're you're on the New York Times bestseller list. Well, I'm going to tell you, ironically, going back to an earlier topic, the first time that happened, I was at karate with my kids. So the New York Times list actually comes out unofficially at 5 a.m. on Wednesday nights. Uh, it publishes at 7, but you usually hear around 5. And I had no reason to think about the New York Times, really. Um, I was getting into my karate uniform. I saw that I had missed a call from New York. Uh, you know, I know the extension. So I was like, mm, I'm going to call them back. And they were like, you hit the New York Times. And I was like, <laughs> I'm like, great. You know, and then and I kind of just went about my karate and they said, are you going to celebrate? I was like, well, we might have an extra topping on the pizza. Um, so it's really exciting and really fun. But the other truth is like, it I don't let it change anything. So Wednesday night, I hear about the New York Times. 
Thursday, I'm driving to Rutgers and eating my peanut butter sandwich in the car. Like it's sort of, you know, it's very nice. My mom gives me the paper with the New York Times. I throw out the paper (laughs) with the New York Times because I don't, I don't want to hang on to it too hard, you know? So I'm Mm -hmm. very grateful, um, especially after the many years when it did not happen. Got it. Um, And you're still in this phase where you're combining, um, you know, the work that you do at Rutgers with this other work that you do. And it feels to me like you have two full-time jobs, right? And then particularly when when you have a book that's just come out and, you know, you want to do a book tour and you want to do book signings and, um, you know, how do you, how do you, and I, and I hate to use the term balance, and I'm not talking about a work-life balance because I don't believe there is any such thing, um, but I do think it's worth sort of talking about, you know, how do you balance um, essentially having, you know, two careers, which is kind of what you have right now, both of which obviously you find fulfilling, um, um, and yet I wonder how they you know, work in conjunction with each other? And how, how do you make them work in conjunction with each other so that you can continue to do, you know, two things that you really enjoy doing? Well, the thing is, um, I really do love both. So I always say if I hit Powerball tomorrow, I don't play Powerball, but if I had power hit Powerball, I would still keep momming, writing and teaching. I just might slow down a little bit, but I really yeah. do. It, it, you know, there, I would not give up anything because I, I love them all. Um, it can certainly be challenging at points, but you have to bear in mind that my writing career always came along, came up alongside and the rest of my life. Like when I was Mm -hmm. an attorney at the firm, it always had to coexist. Um, And so it's sort of natural for me to do both. Um, And I've slowed down on the publishing. I used to publish a book a year and the past few have been a book every two years. And the reason is it does take so much out of my village to put out a book these days, whether it's the book tour or all the social media asks. And I just don't want to do that every year. I'd rather kind of save it up and do it in a bigger way. But it's important to recognize there's tremendous synergies between my legal writing and my fiction writing, you know, careers, if you will. So um, I bring not just to my students about the knowing yourself as a writer and the jumpstarting creativity exercises that I bring to them, all of those different techniques. And I actually tell them if they're shy about showing their work to go on Amazon and read all the terrible things people say about my books. And then they'll feel so <laughs> self-conscious. Um, but I, this. I bring a lot of... Um, I do bring a lot of the creative writing to the legal community, legal side. And then my legal writing really taught me about revision. Cause I, you know, when you're at a mm. firm, you're at a firm, people mark up your work with that red ink and they don't give you solutions. They give you problems and you have to find the solutions in your own voice. And so that's a strength I can bring, you know, to revision, whether it's fiction or for my students. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, <clears throat> I think you. I think you said this or alluded to it um, a little bit earlier, right? That um, you know, the, the writing is in the revision, right? So you get it all on the page. Um, I used to have a uh, um, an English. Uh, I was call her professor. I guess in high school, they're not professors, but I used to have a teacher, an English teacher um, in high school, who used to always say, first get it written, then get it right." Yeah, and I still I still work based on that. Well, that's the heart of being a pantser. So there's pantsers yeah. and plotters. Plotters <laughs> that make it look nice as they go. And pantsers are are the people like me that just go bleh for months and the words come out in a really random order. And then you have to do something with that. I wish I was not like that. But it yeah. actually, there's a book called Writing Down the Bones by Natalie Goldberg. And she's yep. a Zen Buddhist, right? You know it? Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. awesome. And that's what started me off is that approach where you just get it on the page. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Pam, thank you so much. It was really, I, I, like I said, I like having these opportunities to talk to folks um, that are, you know, outside of, you know, a faculty meeting or, you know, of, of those sorts of settings. And, um, you know, I, I have so much admiration for um, the work that you do and for, you know, how full your life is. And at least from the outside, um, you know, you make, I'm not going to say you make it look easy. Um, Cause I always feel a little bit tired when I, you know, hear about all the things that you're doing. Um, but I'm just so, so, so deeply impressed that you've been able to um, harness things that you love and continue to do them and to do them in tandem, in tandem. And I think that's a really good lesson for people about what's possible when you're willing to put in the work, when you're, when you're willing to be disciplined about it. So I think that's really wonderful. Thank you. And thanks for having me on this great series. Absolutely. Thanks, Pam. The Power of Attorney is produced by Rutgers Law School. With two locations, minutes from Philadelphia and New York City, Rutgers Law offers the prestige of reputation of a large, nationally known university with a personal small campus experience. Learn more by visiting law.rutgers.edu.